Part 4. The Soul Between Blood and Steel Chapter 32. Year 883 PXF. Early Spring Castian led Thorn out of the deep-drifting snow of late winter in the high mountains, and into the fragrant springtime breezes of the human lowlands at the southern reaches of the Empire. Castian left Thorn to his own travels once they had descended out of the mountains and into the foothills, himself heading on a course toward Perinshal, on the coast of the Cerulean Sea. As Thorn followed the roads into the lowlands and Elerion proper, he was shocked to find much of the devastation from the rebellion remained, even though a decade had passed. Farmsteads that had been still smoldering when he left remained abandoned, now just crumbling derelicts surrounded by fallow fields. Even the road he walked was in disrepair, and broken-down wagons rotted where they had run afoul like carcasses of long-dead animals. Mile after mile, Thorn found more of the same, and while he felt the urgency to begin his search for the Vermilion Blade, he also couldn't help but wonder what had happened to leave the countryside of Elerion so desolate and unrestored. With no small amount of trepidation, Thorn redirected his path to Arnador, to try and find some answers. When Thorn saw Arnador and its remains after the rebellion, there was a certainty in his heart that the place he called home would rebuild and, free of the yoke of corruption and intrigue, would flourish. But, arriving at the gates of the once welcoming and vibrant town, Thorn was dismayed to find that dream had been a false one. Whatever wealth and leadership that could have led Arnador's reconstruction had instead forsaken it. In the districts whose buildings the battles had decimated, the rubble and ruin had barely been cleared, and instead of new homes and businesses, shanties and makeshift hovels had sprung up. Any buildings that had remained standing had now fallen into squalor and decay, windows broken, doors off hinges, and the evidence of looting apparent everywhere. The few sallow faces he did see peering from shadows and through protected cracks and hiding holes were filled with desperation and fear. Poverty, hunger, and disease were everywhere and the spring thaw filled the air with the miasma of the people and creatures that had not survived the winter. Thorn choked back tears as, on his way to check the keep, sun waning overhead, he came to Ellery Square and the trellis market, both now unrecognizable. However, the most devastating blow came when he saw that the sojourn's rest was now only a burnt-out husk, even Lolly's stove reduced to rust and slag. The flood of Talon's memories of his life inside those walls and under that roof crashed into Thorn. For a brief moment, the sojourn's rest stood once again, a homespun jewel on the corner of Ellery Square, and then dissolved away like the last trail of smoke from a blown-out candle. Thorn explored the ruins for some clue or hint of what had happened. Lost in the cracked memories of the debris, Suddenly curiosity struck him, and he made his way to the hearth where the path of the stone stairs that led to the baths would be. Due to their construction, the stairs were still somewhat concealed, as they had never connected to the inn's main floor and looked like just more of the inn's collapsed, oversized hearth. After two failed searches, he finally found a path through the massive hearth's semi-intact rubble to where the stairs began their descent. At the bottom, he was surprised to see a newly installed, heavily bolted, reinforced door. 
As he approached, a small eye window glowing with arcane protective energy slid open, and two roughly almond-shaped eyes looked out at Thorn. Are you hurt? Is someone injured or sick? A voice asked. Thorn replied, shocked to his core. Balanon? Is that you? I am known by that name, the voice behind the door responded tentatively. Do I know you? You used to, from a time when I was someone else. Thorn pulled down the collar of his shirt and the chainmail beneath, revealing the unmistakable scar Lachlan had placed there. The eyes looked at the scar, then traveled over Thorn's face, finally widening with recognition. Guts! How can it be? I thought you dead! Along with Balanon's voice, Thorn heard the sounds of arcane muttering and the displacement of large bolts sliding back. Come in, quickly! The door swung open, and Thorn stepped inside. The physical room housing the Sojourn's Rest's baths was much the same, but now it had been converted into a surgery for Balanon to practice medicine. The mid-temperature pool had been drained, and its basin now housed multiple examination tables and cabinets of healing supplies. The hot pool still steamed with its crystal-clear water, but Balanon had sectioned off a portion where the water now boiled, its roiling surface revealing the shine of his tools and linens soaking in the cleansing heat. The chilled pool now had dozens of pipes dipping into it like oversized straws that bent and curved their way out of the chamber through either walls or ceiling. Balanon's visage was as timeless as ever, looking to be not much older than Thorn appeared. However, his complexion had lost its ruddy glow of vitality and had dulled to an ashen gray. The surgeon had taken to shaving his head, his scalp showing a week or more's worth of stubble, and his clothes, which had always been so exacting in their upkeep, were disheveled and damaged. Looking them over, Thorn could spot how Balanon, at some point in the past, had kept up with their repair by hand with his meticulous stitching, but more recent damage was left without care. Thorn did not hesitate and grabbed the half-elf surgeon, his friend, his first mentor, in a full-throated embrace. A suppressed shudder of emotion racked Thorn's body as he held his friend and mourned the state of Arnador. Balanon let Thorn grieve for a few moments, then pulled away and looked up into the face of the new man before him. Thorn began with an introduction. I am Thorn now. Talon Corvermain died the day of the revolt. Balanon nodded in acknowledgement, testing the name out. Thorn, it is a good name. He continued. I am ready to hear whatever you are willing to share of the rest. Thorn told his mentor everything. He ended his tale with, But most of this was not something I was immediately aware of. It has been slowly unfolding over the last decade. He spread his arms and turned around. The curse seems all-encompassing in its course. Not just the wounds the Vermilion Blade gave, but even the vast amounts of damage caused by an enlargement spell cast on living flesh. The only one remaining is this, pointing to his chest, from his crystal powder. Balanon took in all the information, like any good practitioner of medicine would but even he seemed overwhelmed, especially by the information regarding the healed damage from Naz's spell. As though he could soothe his mind with a touch, he pulled his fingers across his eyelids and pinched his nose when Thorn completed his dissertation of all that had occurred. 
It is fascinating, and in my years I have not heard of the like. However, my profession is to care for the common ailments of regular people, not the curses of weapons and heroes. After that disclaimer, Balanon switched to a more technical assessment. I do agree with your observations, though. You look to be a human of twenty-five years, no more than twenty-seven. Then, grabbing a light and lens from his desk, Balanon approached and, after getting a nod of consent, shined the light and looked through the lens into Thorn's eye. You say you have recently lost some height. And of course, your mass is far less than that of Talon when I saw him last at the estate, or even from afar as the Duke's envoy or knight captain. It is interesting, though, that your face is not a clone of Talon's at this same age, and the difference is more than can be explained by a change in weight and lifestyle. I can't explain my face other than it feels like it is mine. This is Thorn's face, not Talon's. The height is just recently, within the last three months. The rest, with your confirmation on age, seems to me that for the years I should have aged forward, I have aged almost twice that backward. As Thorn finally said it out loud, Balanon, at first, just said an off-handed, Ah! And then the implications hit him as well. He pulled away and gazed at Thorn. And there it is, yes? Thorn asked rhetorically. A forty-five-year-old human in this day and age should be able to count on another thirty years of life, fifty if he is lucky, and with magic, perhaps even eighty years. He continued with the calmness of one who has resigned themselves to their demise. In less than a decade, I could be barely a teenager. Five years more and I will need someone to act as my parent. Beyond that... Balanon cut Thorn off. We don't know that yet. And just because the artificers and enchanters of Oldstone didn't have answers doesn't mean they don't exist. Perhaps, Thorn stated flatly. Then, changing the subject, he asked, What has happened to Arnador? To Elyon? Why has nothing been rebuilt? That is a long story with many versions and finger-pointing at who is to blame. I will make us some tea. Balanon, in deference to their previous subject, patted Thorn on the shoulder with a look that conveyed the empathy of someone who had spent a lifetime learning to help and knew there was nothing they could do. Balanon relayed to Thorn the story of the years after the rebellion. When the fighting stopped and the shock of Elyon's failed secession wore off, the noble houses of Arnador began to position themselves as the rightful heir to the duchy. Receiving utter silence from the emperor, they began to seize power and gather influence where they could. Not unexpectedly, it wasn't long before the house's ambitions began to grind against one another, and bloody feuds erupted over Elyon's scarce and decimated resources. In the first five years after the rebellion, Sabotage, assassinations, and policies of salting the earth in retaliation for losses led to the fall of the nobles and even further destruction of the countryside. Even House Corps Vermain did not emerge from that period unscathed. Trying to appease the emperor and claim the duchy, the house split, expunging Toman's side of the family. The house was retitled House Vermain, after Veronique made an advantageous remarriage to a wealthy but titleless shipping merchant in Jadenpool. There were brief rumors that Toman attempted to legitimize House Coeur, but it gained no traction and dissolved. After the fall of Arnador's nobles, 
the farmers and laborers tried to organize a guild-based government. It began well, but the need for funds to rebuild far outstripped the taxation that could be levied without animosity. So, to remedy their tax burden, the last pockets of concentrated wealth aimed packs of roaming mercenaries at those who would steal their profits and give them away, eventually tearing the guild council apart. And that left Elerion where it is today, broken and sucked dry of hope or promise for a better future. Balanon concluded, There are a few pockets out in the countryside where the seeds of renewal are sprouting, but they are always in jeopardy of being trodden underfoot by those who would take and destroy rather than try to rebuild. Thorn couldn't help but shake his head in disbelief, but reluctant acceptance. Balanon continued, As for me, I do my part for those who still cling to life here in Arnador. I can keep up with injuries, but the disease is another matter. He motioned to the chilled pool with the piping. Clean water is the best I can offer, as restoratives are beyond my power with so much life leached out of the region. Having recounted the history, Balanon seemed to recall something. Thorn, perhaps there is someone who might help you. There was a hermit, or some even say a hag, that made their home near the spring you spoke of. Some went to them as much as they came to me for medical attention in the early days of the rebellion. Those who visited called them the Watcher of the Waters, as they would sit at the spring and watch it for hours without end. Then, becoming aware of the hour, Balanon added, But you must stay here for the night. No one should be caught in the city without shelter after dark. The two retired, and while he felt secure within Balanon's sanctuary, alarming sounds from above still filtered down to the underground baths. Thorn sprung awake at some early hour before dawn to a loud arcane jolt and retreating whimpering after being dimly aware of some loud growls and a claw scratching at the sturdy door that Balanon had installed. Just after dawn, Balanon awakened Thorn and supplied him with some of his scarce provisions for his trek to the spring reminding him to either be back at his door before sundown, or to camp well outside the city, so as not to attract the beasts who scavenged the ruins for carrion by night. Instead of heading through the city to exit through the eastern gate adjacent to the keep, Thorn left via the southern gate closest to the remains of Ellery Square, wary of the creatures he had heard through the night. While he was confident in his skills, he was not foolish enough to falsely believe that a skilled warrior couldn't get overrun by a pack of starving beasts. As Thorn circled to the east to head for the spring, many of the homes and small businesses outside the perimeter of Arnador he had once known had disappeared or were in ruins. The missing landmarks confounded his sense of direction from time to time, but like the day he fled with the Vermilion Blade, his legs seemed to know the way back to the spring. Thorn found the spring and surrounding glade to be remarkably much the same, not just from the last time he was here a decade ago, but even from that magical first visit with Riken. As he approached, he could almost imagine two young boys lying on the boulder, exploring their connection and falling into a love that, at least for one of them, would last a lifetime. After the despair and destruction that marred the rest of his homecoming, the untouched spring seemed almost surreal like it somehow existed in a place outside space and time. They were so still, and their clothing so covered in detritus, moss, and lichen, 
that Thorn would not have spotted them had he not been so familiar with the spring and its surrounding features. His mind first registered the Watcher of the Waters as a large rock that had somehow appeared at the water's edge on the opposite side of the spring from the boulder, until he spotted the eyes peering out from under matted gray-green hair focused solely on him. Good morn to you. I come as a friend. Are you the Watcher of the Waters? Thorn raised a hand in greeting, holding his other hand out to his side without a weapon to show his peaceful intent. When he received no response, he took a different tact, believing that no one of ill will could invade this place. I am from this spring, born by it. I carry Kasfarian's blade. As Thorn unsheathed the sickle and raised it, blade down and clearly showing the small tree that was the hilt, the reaction was immediate. The hunched figure stood up and began to glide across the water's surface toward him.